Hi everyone, I'm Amelia Quint, and you're listening to Bad Astrologers, where we take a cultural, spiritual, literary, and mythological look at the heavens. A few things before we begin today's episode. First, if you're following me on Instagram, and you should be, you may have heard that I'm hosting a celebration for the Great Conjunction on the Solstice, and you're invited. In the Mapping the Stars 2021 workshop on Monday, December 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to share the astrological technique I've been using to plan my New Year's strategy for ages now. You'll get a PDF workbook so you can follow along and set your goals in real time. We'll also go over important dates coming up in the new year, and there'll be a ceremony to honor 2020 and to give you a head start towards your desires in 2021. We've already got quite the crowd signed up, and I hope you'll join us too. So head over to ameliaquint.com slash 2021 workshop to sign up. Or if you are a Patreon supporter of this show, you can grab the discounted link there. Speaking of the new year, if one of your resolutions is to deepen your astrology practice, I have a few spots open for the mentoring and apprenticeship program starting in January. You can learn all about my philosophy in the episode, How to Learn Astrology, but the short version is this. We meet weekly and I give you tailored reading lists and assignments to sharpen your skills, whether it's reading certain types of charts or building your brand for the first time. I can also teach tarot and magical work if that's your thing. It'd be an honor to work together in the new year, and you can apply at ameliaquint.com mentoring. Next, if you want my eyes on your natal chart to see what's coming at you in the next 12 months, or are just curious to learn more about yourself, I'm also available for consults. Spaces are very limited. In fact, they're almost gone for 2020. So head over to ameliaquint.com book dash a dash reading to reserve your spot. Finally, and as always, Bad Astrologers is an independent production made possible by the very generous support of our incredibly wise and witchy Patreon supporters. For a small monthly contribution, they get access to exclusive forecasts, horoscopes, terascopes, and Q&A videos where you can ask a question about your chart. We're planning some really big things in the new year, so if you want to see this show grow to create even more magical content, stop by patreon.com badastro and stay for a spell. It's been an absolute surprise and delight to create this weird and mystical confluence for such an amazing group of people, and I can't wait to see what 2021 brings us all. Now, time for the episode. If you've been a listener of this show for a while, you've probably heard mention of Babylon, the Thelemic goddess, or maybe the term Scarlet Woman. While these concepts have grown to loom large in the magical current, as well as the social media communities that have grown up surrounding them, they remain at the fringes for most, which is why I wanted to bring in the expert on the subject, Dr. Manon Hedenberg-White, also known as at Dr. underscore Scarlet Woman on Instagram and Twitter, to tell us all about it. She's the author of The Eloquent Blood, The Goddess Babylon, and the Construction of Femininities in Western Esotericism, available from Oxford University Press, which absolutely blew me away when I read it this summer. She has such a gift for bringing arcane concepts down to earth, which is why I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. Manon was also kind enough to share her natal chart with me, and we'll talk about how her stars line up with her journey from studious kid to academic to expert on new religions. A quick word of caution before we begin. 
As you might expect in a podcast about Babylon, this conversation has strong sexual themes. We talk about everything from sex magic to how the song WAP embodies this goddess's energy. So be sure to grab your headphones before you proceed any further. Got them in? Okay, good. Now sit back, relax, take a deep breath, and let's start the show. Hi, Manon. Thank you so much for joining me on Bad Astrologers today. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I was going to say good morning, but I'm pretty sure it is the middle of the <laughs> afternoon where you are. That is, that is correct. And still, strangely, it's already getting dark. That's really, really odd. Yeah, since the mm. time change, it's been, feels almost spookier than Halloween, even though there was that full moon, right? So mm, definitely does. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to talk to you. I have uh, so many questions. Um, and I guess we'll just go ahead and dive right in. Um, in the introduction, I obviously mentioned about your beautiful book, which we will dive into. But you're also here because I want to talk a little bit about you and your journey and how you ended up writing um, such an interesting and important uh, piece of work. So first off, I know you're an academic and I, I'm academic mm -hmm. adjacent, I would call myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, were you a studious child? Like, were you always writing? Did you always know that you wanted to keep going to school? Yeah, yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, kind of, even from when I was really little, I loved to, to read and write. I was very much sort of into kind of, um, sitting down type activities. I, I loved books. I, <laughs> I started writing my own stories when I was really like just a little kid. I loved to to draw and do things like that. When I started school, I really sort of, um, I really enjoyed that as well. I always loved to learn new things. So yeah, I was definitely very much a, uh, a studious child, as you say. I love that so much. Yeah, I noticed mm -hmm. one of the first two things I noticed when I looked at your astrology chart, she is mm -hmm. uh, for the audience, uh, Leo Sun, Scorpio Moon and Cancer Rising, by the way, but mm -hmm. again, we'll get into more of that <laughs> later. You have this amazing um, Mercury exalted in Virgo at zero degrees, which is just like, mm -hmm. um, it's one, one of the most powerful positions for Mercury in the chart. And Mercury is the mm -hmm. uh, eternal student um, who mm. is a mm. signifier of education and writing and especially writing in the sense of um, being very focused on the facts and the data and pattern recognition. Um, it's not mm -hmm. like the poet mm -hmm. of Mercury and Pisces. So mm -hmm. I, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, well, of course, this makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And another piece of the puzzle I wanted to share is that you, um, similarly, another very prominent piece is on that Cancer Rising, you have Jupiter mm -hmm. there, um, like within a degree, mm -hmm. which is like remarkable, it's very close. And Jupiter in Cancer is arguably the best one to have, it's exalted <laughs> as well. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, Jupiter is the planet of academia. And also, uh, he's the priest of the Zodiac. And so he's spirituality mm -hmm. in a sense of studying um, religion specifically. And so becoming a scholar mm. of religion is like, I felt I was like, wow, this is a little <laughs> bit on the nose. Like, 
right. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how um, how symbolically specific astrology can be at mm. times. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's so interesting that yeah, because the ascendant shows early on in life, you. You found mm-hmm. that you were very studious super early on, but I'm also curious mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. what point did your interest in esotericism enter your story? Are you younger or older? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, that's kind of an interesting question. I mean, in, in one way it entered really early. So my, mm-hmm. um, my father has always been kind of like a kind of a spiritual person or like a spiritual seeker basically and he used to like when i was a little kid about five or six years old he used to we used to play around with his his tarot deck which was the the toth tarot deck incidentally and he used to you know let me draw a card and i used to like play around and we used to talk about the images and and things like that so that was kind of there really early but obviously i didn't you know i didn't know anything about crowley for instance i didn't have that whole sort of esoteric um wider kind of esoteric context to to tie it into but I was like I was interested in in that and I was interested in um like mythology at quite an early age like I had a book of Greek mythology that my grandfather used to read to me which I think had a quite a significant impact on me as well and as I this was also when I was about like five or six years old and as I got a little bit older maybe like um you know like early early teens i was really fascinated by secret societies and magic and like you know pagan pagany things i like mm-hmm. all the books <laughs> a lot like <laughs> like probably familiar to to a lot of us um like lots of the books that i read were um kind of in that uh in that sort of domain like um you know, like a book like uh, The Mists of Av- Avalon by Marion Simmer Bradley, not a very sort of politically correct author to, to cite uh, these days, yes. but like I read that. Yeah, like I think many I read of that us read that early on, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like I loved it and it had like a huge impact on me as well. And I was so drawn to this idea. And like I was also so interested in like secret societies and you know, strange, marginal kind of religious movements, those types of things. I like, I I sort of like for a few years, kind of in my mid teens, I used to hang out on this like online forum, people who were kind of into like um, chaos magic and, and other esoteric things. But I didn't really like, I didn't really have a context for it because no one around me was interested in this, uh, this type of stuff. I didn't really have any uh, none of the friends that I had at that age had like a remote interest in in anything like that. So I kind of, I kept it sort of private, but I had this kind of idea, like another influence that I had like in my mid-teens was, you know, the movie Ninth, The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is all about kind of um, pursuing rare occult manuscripts and interacting with these strange sort of occult societies. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is, you know, what if I could do this for a living? That would be really cool. But it didn't, you know, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't click with me that, that, w- that there is any way of doing that for a living. So like, it, it, 
anyway, so, so in a way, it's been like an old interest. I've always been drawn to these types of ideas, but it wasn't actually until I started out at university, I started studying anthropology. And by weird sort of coincidental ways, I came into contact with other scholars and students who had uh, taken an interest in uh, esotericism, occultism, Wicca, Satanism, these types mm -hmm. of movements. And I sort of figured out that, wow, there's a way of kind of uh, studying this at a sort of professional level where I could even, you know, conceivably kind of make a living out of um, my my interest in, in these types of things. So, uh, and most of the people who'd like written in the context of academia about esotericism turned out to be historians of religion or scholars of religion. So that kind of led me into that area of study. And that's kind of, so yeah, so so in a way it's it's been in my life for a really long time, but like the terminology of, of esotericism and, and understanding where these currents come from historically that that happened much more recently that that really happened in in adulthood i love that that is fascinating and i also think <laughs> that shines through in if i may in um, your mm -hmm. book the eloquent blood for sure that was what i loved so much about it is because it gives so much mm -hmm context to this movement that I think you when mm -hmm. you mentioned the experience of being a, a young person on the forums and reading these things that you didn't have too much mm -hmm. context for I think that is a totally common experience for folks mm -hmm. um, no matter mm -hmm. where you're from or what your background is mm -hmm. um, and it, mm -hmm. it can be difficult especially with social media now I think people come mm -hmm. to it with a, a sense that well, you, you have to already know everything, um, but where are you actually mm. going to learn it? Mm. Like if you, if you don't know something, yeah. it's gauche, right? Um, mm. But there's no way Definitely. to actually get that context. And I think before mm. that too, it was mm. just that there wasn't enough um, work on these emerging movements to really put it all, line it all up. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously mm -hmm. when I read uh, The Eloquent Blood, I was, I was blown away. I was like, wow, okay, this <laughs> um, topic that I feel like before had been either um, mm -hmm talked about by practitioners or talked about in such a dry historical context that it wasn't very mm -hmm. accessible you you made it make sense as the meme goes right mm -hmm. <laughs> in this lovely <laughs> lovely way so i'm glad that you watched well, the ninth you. gate and i'm glad that you decided <laughs> to i don't know like devote your life to seeking out um strange well, occult you. materials it made me laugh when you mentioned the uh, the uh, mythology book that you read with your grandfather. Mm. I've noticed on the show mm. the um, mythology um, and Egypt and classics obsession um, has a strong mm. pipeline mm. to occult, uh, mm. <laughs> for sure. Oh, definitely, and I'm not definitely. Sure why, no, there's but... a yeah, but there's there's definitely an overlap. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One more point on your chart with this uh, esotericism mm -hmm. piece too is that um, Scorpio moon with Pluto there, so it's like the the super enhanced Scorpio moon. Um, it's mm -hmm. it's you're so comfortable with these topics that can be either <laughs> taboo or seen as bizarre or strange mm -hmm. or fringe or on the margins. Um, mm. And because the moon is your ruling planet with Cancer rising, it's even more pronounced mm. and even more of a like a, a drive to like dig deeper mm. and deeper and deeper into the origins of these um, spooky mm. things, I guess. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So mm -hmm. I, I'm also interested in, um, you know, in academia, in my experiences. And of course, I've worked across the board. I've worked in an art school. I've also worked with scientists. So I've seen a little bit of everything. But I've noticed there can mm -hmm. be this, like, at times adversarial relationship between what's considered, like, hard research or science mm -hmm. or just an academic approach at all and anything mm -hmm. spiritual, spiritual topics mm -hmm. or um, new religions mm -hmm. or any of the things that you listed. So I imagine mm -hmm. while studying these things, um, especially the spiritualities that constellate around the figure mm -hmm. of Babylon has required mm -hmm. some mental gymnastics on your part. Um, mm -hmm. So what does it mean to you to approach the topic of spirituality and new religions from an academic mindset? Mm, mm. I mean, that's a really, that's a really, really interesting, that's a really good question. Um, and I definitely think, um, yeah, so, so like, I mean, working, I guess, with the, the sort of the types of source um, material that, that I've uh, worked on in, in like sort of my, my academic work and, but also the ways in which I've studied the esoteric and the occult. I mean, in the sense that I work with like qualitative methods or what's known as qualitative methods where you like, mm -hmm. uh, you don't look at a really broad set of data, but instead you look at a more kind of, um, narrowly defined set of materials and you go into depth and you really look at all the nuances and you can do that with text and you can also do that with um where you with less structured or, or what's known as semi-structured interviews or, or kind of um ethnographic field work and participant observation where you where you like enter uh like a social context or in, in you know in terms of studying esotericism or occultism you 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 live among people and you practice with them and you go you enter ritual settings and you look at what's going on and you observe other people's responses and you observe your own responses and like working with these types of sources. And I think especially, uh, as you say, with, with topics that have been kind of marginalized in, in society with, with religious movements or esoteric groups that have been seen as kind of transgressive and taboo by society, but also kind of in the context of academia. I mean, it's quite, recent for these topics to be um taken seriously in the sense that we are that they are mm -hmm. today yeah um but which is a really fabulous thing that it now is but and and like working with these types of methods and these types of, of topics as i've done i think kind of just basically empathy and the ability to on a like emotional sort of human level kind of enter the worldview of the people that you're studying, whether they are people who are alive today or whether they're historical people like, you know, Alistair Crowley or Jack Parsons or Leah Hersig or, or any of those people. I think this, um, I mean, empathy and, and that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of ability to sort of emotionally sympathize with and, and sort of go how how would this person have responded in that situation what is happening here or, or like in this ritual why why might the people who are kind of in this ritual setting be drawn to this particular context what could this ritual be doing in in this particular context i mean that's absolutely necessary for, for qualitative methods and uh when you do 
participant observation or, or like ethnographic field work in in these groups or, or among these uh, among among human beings. I mean, you do form relationships with them. You uh, you mm-hmm. you go through like ritual settings, and they have an effect on you. And you form friendships. You you get to know people that you that you click with. You get to know people that you click less with, and and that sort of your own. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, sort of like your own emotional um, kind of sensitivity in a way, your sensibility and, and empathy is a tool for research. I mean, it's 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 difficult to do research without having that. I think at least this type of research. So, but but of course, there's always there's always a risk of your own sort of um, your own personal affective or emotional kind of reactions to things getting in the way of interpretation, and that's. That's always um, kind of a potential pitfall as well that you end up writing about yourself, right, rather than what you're actually yes, supposed to be absolutely. like studying. So that's, but like for instance, with 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 Leah Hersig, for instance, who uh, whom I know you you talked about a little in uh, in a previous episode, who was uh, who was Alistair Crowley's lover and, and Scarlet Woman for a few years in in the early 1920s. I've been uh, I've been working with kind of her biography and, and life story in the research project that I'm doing now. And I've been looking into her her diaries from that period. And there's kind of a moment in her diaries in the autumn of 1924 when Crowley essentially he leaves her and he finds a new Scarlet Woman and he leaves her in Paris and she stays there and she's still practicing her magic, but she's going through I mean, uh, she doesn't write that she is, you know, sad or that she's heartbroken. She 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 writes basically that she's, you know, she's happy that this has happened. It's obviously what's right for Crowley. It's obviously what's right for her. It's what's right for this new woman. Uh, but at the same time, she's writing that, you know, she's not eating anything. She's chain smoking constantly. She's drinking uh-huh. constantly. She collapses <laughs> in public and she's doing all these sort of mental mental and and kind of magical gymnastics to sort of work out a way of making sense of what's happened and if you like for me reading that and for everyone else that I've talked to who's read those diaries says that it's so like it's so emotionally gripping because this is obviously a person who's going through like heartbreak essentially she's really really emotionally distraught at having been um having lost her lover in this way but like you know so I think in that way, even if you're working with this kind of dry historical material, in a sense, it's it's necessary to be able to do that kind of emotional leap and go, well, what is she going through here? Like, what what would a human being in this situation be experiencing from like an emotional, spiritual point of view? But like, on the other hand, of course, it's also important to not like read your own experiences into the material. So that's that's kind of a um, that's kind of a challenge, I think, in in sort of uh, in historical research as well. I think that in order to understand um, historical people and their experiences and perceptions, whether they be occultists or whether they be, you know, involved in something completely different, you have to kind of do this um, back and forth dance between, you know, kind of a, a sort of human level and and using your own kind of emotional empathy and and sensibility as as kind of a way of understanding what someone would have been going through and then also kind of go back to a sort of drier more historical 
historically minded sort of um you know also awareness of how how different people can be and how different different sort of historical eras can be and how you know what we may think of as as universal emotional responses might not be that at all they can be really kind of historically and, and culturally specific and, and time bound so i guess it, there's a there's a dialectic um i would say that i think both of those levels are useful and they, they complement each other wow empathy as research tool is such a a fascinating <laughs> take and i absolutely <laughs> love it and and they, i i think that's a fabulous example that you gave of Leah Hersig. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing my own mental gymnastics and thinking, well, I don't know, it seems mm -hmm. like chain smoking and collapsing in public is a pretty bad sign. Emotionally, <laughs> but I don't know if you have to mm -hmm. take her at her mm -hmm. word that she's like, well, this is what's best for Crowley. Mm -hmm. It'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But luckily, we have mm -hmm. you to um, help us do those somersaults uh, of the heart, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is yeah, terrific. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, I, it's a bit eerie mm. um, because uh, in your chart, when you were mentioning mm. all of this, um, it sort of showed up in a way that I wasn't expecting. I was um, noticing that the midheaven in astrology is sort of the the career, but not necessarily in the sense of like where you go to work every day or the money you make. It's more your mm -hmm. legacy and. Um, I guess for an mm. academic, it would be your research interests and like what you're known for speaking about. Um, mm. And for you, that's in Pisces. And so to mm -hmm. me, that reads as, as a legacy of spirituality and magic and religions. Um, mm. Mm. Um, and also another Pisces keyword is empathy. But then uh, opposite mm. that, your mm. IC, which is basically your comfort zone, like what you feel safest and like what you kind of fall back on is in Virgo, which is the most analytical, most uh, qual uh, quantitative, if you will, <laughs> along with your Mercury. Mm -hmm. So it's like you love the data and the evidence and, and the field work, but you're able to mm -hmm. effectively like balance those two things and really bring about mm -hmm. something magic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's wonderful. So mm -hmm. for the you mentioned Leah Hersig, and so I feel like we need to talk about Babylon. I think it's time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So for the uninitiated, who maybe I don't know if you're listening to this podcast and you've gotten this far. If you don't know who Babylon is, I would be a bit surprised. But for any the uninitiated <laughs> who may be listening and new, or maybe they've heard the word here or there, um, could you take us on like a, a relatively brief journey through her story or her iconography? and the role Babylon has played in modern occult currents. I know there's a whole book on this, but <laughs> this, this yeah. is the Cliff Notes version. And everyone should buy it. <laughs> I agree. No. I, will put the, um, um, I think there's a code you can go directly to Oxford University Press and get 30% off. But yes. <laughs> they can just, or they can just listen to this and they don't have to buy the book. No. There um, you go. <laughs> no. So, okay. The, the, the Cliff Notes version is that um, Babylon is first mentioned as the name of a goddess in the writings of Alistair Crowley. But Crowley, in kind of envisioning this, this divine figure, I would say drew on two different sort of historical strands. So one of them is the uh, that of biblical apocalypticism. So there's the Book of Revelation, 
which is the, the last book of the New Testament written sometime in the first century of the Common Era, uh, which is a, a vision for the end of the world and the return of Jesus, basically. And in the book of Revelation, we have a series of kind of angelic and infernal apparitions which are described by the um the seer john so one of them is uh babylon the great the mother of abominations who 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 is described in the bible as this majestic lewd promiscuous woman who's clad in scarlet and purple she wears rich jewels she comes riding astride the seven-headed beast she um and she's the mother of, of abominations and harlots of the earth and she is uh she's the the whore of babylon as as she's often known has has kind of been a very alive figure in in western culture ever since uh, ever since that time basically but she was especially kind of revitalized uh with the reformation where she has been seen as as a symbol like in in christian discourse as uh, in protestant discourse as kind of a symbol of the roman catholic church so a very sort of mm -hmm. sensual alluring but ultimately corrupting worldly influence and there's a second strand which i would say would be uh the magical experiments of john d and edward kelly um in the during the reign of queen elizabeth the first uh with their um the the angelic uh magical experiments that they conducted and the uh the, the enochian language that they transcribed where the word babylon and uh babylond also with a d at the end uh also appear in the uh in the enochian uh language meaning harlot and meaning um i think wicked or, or wickedness but they're not specifically used as as names for for like one uh kind of demarcated entity the first person mm -hmm. to uh to do that was really alistair crowley so in um in 1909, Crowley was in the Algerian desert with his, his lover and his magical student, Victor Neuberg, and they decided to explore the, uh, the Enochian magic of, of Dee and Kelly, and specifically the Enochian ethers, which are these kind of realms or, or spheres of, of otherworldly um, existence. And, and in one of these ethers, Crowley has a vision of this... Um, awesome kind of goddess type figure this great woman astride a beast and he learns in his vision that this is this is babylon the great this is the mother of abominations um so there's this very sort of there's this very clear overlap with the biblical language with the the very significant transformation that crowley sees this as a positive figure this is not you know an antagonist she's actually uh, a divine entity and she is linked to one of the most uh pivotal magical transformations in crowley's magical system which is known as the crossing of the abyss which is uh which means kind of traversing and surviving this terrifying void between the ultimate divine and uh the manifest or the material and the numinous and in order to do that the the adept or the seeker has to um, completely annihilate their their ego and their individuality and become entirely passive or entirely receptive to all of existence and uh in so doing they're united with babylon 
who is the key to to the other side uh, to to what Crowley calls the city of the pyramids. And so, like, uh, and, and Crowley describes this process of crossing the abyss and annihilating your ego in two different ways. He he describes it in a, a sexual way as the giving up of the self to the beloved, but he also describes it in terms of, of draining your blood into Babylon's cup. So, so what crossing the abyss means, it's uh, it's both, like in, in, Crowley's, in Crowley's writings at least, it's both uniting with Babylon, but it's also in a way emulating her formula, which is one of, of passionate, non-discriminate union with all of uh, with all of existence and not making any value judgments as to this is good, this is bad, this is righteous, this is perverse, but uh, accepting everything and, and taking it uh, as it is, as he writes that Babylon does, she has given herself to all, basically. So there's this very sort of, there's this very sort of lofty, mystical kind of, um, meaning to that figure but there's also a more concrete one which is linked to uh, the idea that sexuality is is sacred that crowley kind of describes babylon as uh the manifestation of the divine feminine for this specific aeon that we're in right now and she's very she's very earthly in some ways as well and she's very sexual and uh linked to this of course is this idea of, of feminine sexuality or, or female sexuality as uh a sacred um, and uh, spiritually meaningful in itself. So, after these uh, after these revelations in 1909, Crowley continued to to kind of develop and and uh, sketch out and flesh out that um, that idea throughout the rest of his uh, life. And she, of course, appears. Babylon appears in his uh, his top tarot that Crowley created towards the end of his life with Frida Lady Harris, who, who made the illustrations um, on the, the lust trump card of the Toth Tarot as this, um, this great woman with this long, luscious hair who rides naked and ecstatic on the back of the, of the beast. So that's a really, that, that kind of ties it all together, I guess you could say. Um, I guess that's the uh, somewhat extended Cliff Notes version. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely perfect. And even better that you wrapped it up on the image that I think people are probably most aware of and, and comfortable with is that Toth um, mm. card that you mm. mentioned. Mm. And uh, maybe William Blake's version of uh, the Horror of Babylon, mm. but, um, mm. which, That's which a I love as well. Yes, yeah, me too. I'm a huge William Blake nerd, but I think a mm. lot of occultists are. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> um, but that that is Definitely. the most um, concise history of Babylon ever uh, committed to audio, and I feel grateful <laughs> that you shared with us. Um, but <laughs> before we before we go further into our mm -hmm. our analysis on the the history of the the cards of Babylon, I must mm -hmm. know. So, how did your academic studies on Babylon come about? Um, like, how how do you mm -hmm. go to your um, PhD dissertation advisor and say, I've got it. We're going to research Babylon. Like, what does that conversation look like? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, um, I guess, you know, what, like, as to what that conversation looks like, there's kind of, I mean, there's, a, there's an academic argument, uh, which is, mm -hmm. which is how that conversation went, basically. And, and there's a more, there's a more personal 
kind of link as well. So the academic <laughs> argument and how I uh, how I pitched this when I wrote my uh, proposal for my PhD dissertation was that um, I was interested in in ideas about gender in in esotericism and, and specifically ideas about femininity in esotericism, which was something that has been relatively kind of underexplored in academic scholarship on esotericism anyway. And I was also interested in, and I am interested in, kind of how symbols transform over time. You could say I very much sort of mm-hmm. um, of the school that symbols are not static. They're, you know, they change in different historical contexts and people can fill them with different ways. So I was, you know, really fascinated about kind of by this by this thing of this uh this figure who appears in the bible as an antagonist how she is sort of embraced in the 20th century as a goddess and a very positive symbol and how after crowley's death she has been transformed by other sort of uh esoteric practitioners and and writers who have followed in crowley's footsteps but who have also taken this idea in lots of new directions so and and i've found this to be a very sort of uh rich fertile soil for looking at kind of tensions and um interesting interesting areas of tension in how ideas about femininity and female sexuality have been navigated over the past century century and a half but and you know that that's that's kind of and and all of those things are, are true. I, I do think this is an incredibly mm-hmm. interesting source material from that point of view. From a more sort of personal point of view, I just had a very kind of I guess when I when I started out at, at university, one of the first classes that I took in in history of religions was one on religion and sexuality and one of the first papers that I wrote for that uh, for that class was um, I I was kind of searching around for what to write about and I was reading a few scholarly works on esotericism and I stumbled across Crowley's ideas about Babylon and the Scarlet Woman and I decided to write about Mm. that uh, because it also just kind of i don't know i just sort of instantly i was just instantly kind of drawn to this idea and fascinated by it and i kind of fell you know i fell in love a little bit with 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 the material like um at that point i i started reading some of jack parsons's writings about babylon which in which in some ways are more accessible i think than a lot of what crowley's written but i was just you know really sort of hooked by it so like all of the kind of analytical historical reasons why I think it's uh, it's been it's made sense for me to to study this as a historian and as a scholar of religion they're all true but mm-hmm. there's also a part of it that's just that you know I was I was very intuitively like yes this is what I want to this is what I want to write about and when it came to drafting a proposal for a PhD, it was very sort of clear to me that this is what I wanted to write about. And thankfully, I had, um, I had supervisors and I had a sort of support, a very supportive community of other scholars who were, um, who also felt that it made sense for me to, to write about these, uh, 
these ideas. So I had a lot of um, I had a lot of support from from others as well in that. Thankfully, I know that's not that's not at all the case for everyone who who studies these uh, these types of uh, phenomena. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that your advisors um, <laughs> signed off on it and, and sent you on this quest. And it is it is fascinating the way that the things that we choose to study or even the things that we end up doing for our careers, it might not be something that it might just be an intuitive hunch at first, like, oh, I feel mm. drawn to this or it seems um, interesting to me. And mm. you never uh, realize, I'm sure when you wrote your paper for your religion and mm -hmm. sexualities class, you weren't thinking, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I am going to do my uh, dissertation on this. So yeah, no, for anybody who's no. feeling adrift or wondering like, oh, I don't think I mm. have it all figured out yet. Um, just let yourself, that's mm -hmm. a very Babylonian way of being, just be receptive, yeah. allow it to flow and yeah. it'll be okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. So I, <laughs> Um, I think I tweeted about this at one point. In fact, I know that I did, but I don't remember exactly how I said mm -hmm. it. Um, the thing that so struck me about your book, The Eloquent Blood, is that I saw it floating around Instagram. I think I can't remember exactly where I assembled on it, but eventually I started seeing it on um, Instagram. And it's a very it's a very beautiful book. Um, the cover is mm -hmm. lovely. It's a scarlet and gold like Babylon herself. Um, but then I kind of <laughs> squinted and looked closer and I was like, what? Oxford University Press? Okay. Interesting. You have my attention. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I picked it up and, uh, you know, in the, the subhead of the book, it's about construction of femininities in these new religions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. obviously it's very, it's a very glamorous book and it is a wonderful thing <laughs> for practitioners to read, but the mm -hmm. sort of treatment of the construction of femininities and gender and sexuality just absolutely blew me away like there is nothing else that i have read period <laughs> um mm, in mm. the last however many years that that synthesizes these things in this particular way and mm -hmm. I, I think babylon was such an interesting figure to um use as like a starting point for that so first of all thank you mm -hmm. and to that point <laughs> the thing about babylon that i both grappled with in my initial readings of Crowley's work and um, was fascinated with by modern uh, practitioners when they started to mention her to me is that she both upholds these traditional paradigms of femininity, like erotic receptivity mm -hmm. and bodily adornment, but at the same mm -hmm. time breaks them down and sort of reforms mm -hmm. and recreates them. So I'm curious mm -hmm. in your studies, how have you reconciled these opposing parts of her nature? Or like, is mm -hmm. that a possible thing to do? <laughs> <laughs> mm, no, I think that's, um, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and um, that, that, that is definitely something that I have tried to kind of highlight when I've, uh, in my book, when I've written about this as well, that there are, there is this tension kind of in this idea of, of Babylon between um, some ideas of, of what femininity is or what female or, or feminine sexuality is that are, um, I think, extremely, I mean, they were extremely transgressive and, and quite sort of norm breaking during the early 20th century. And, and they continue to be um, mm -hmm. such as, you know, the, the, the idea of, of female or feminine kind of sexual assertiveness and, and promiscuity as, as something that's not only, it's not only, you know, tolerable, but it's actually something that can be sacred and that can be really, 
um, spiritually valid in in a lot of ways. And there, but there are other aspects of it that are more kind of, um, in some ways, connected to more kind of traditional stereotypical ideas about femininity as well, such as you know that women should be sexually available, for instance. That is, and and that's also something that's brought up in in some feminist critiques in the sort of esoteric community that I've uh, that I've studied with sort of feminist critiques of Babylon. There's been this question, you know, is this idea just something that says that women should be sexually available to men on, you know, um, at a moment's notice and, and, and in every possible way? And is that really liberating and, and so on and so forth? And I think that, um, this goes back to a really interesting question about femininity, which is something that, you know, what, what is seen as feminine in, in society, it's still in our culture, still continues often to be seen as less, less than what is seen as, as masculine. Like femininity is, is valued less than, than masculinity, I would say, on a cultural level. But, but even within the context of, of feminist discourse and, and feminist theory, femininity has been seen as a problem as well there's been a tendency in um especially some forms of more sort of academically informed feminism to kind of look down on everything that is seen as you know stereotypically stereotypically feminine so uh things like you know adornment and makeup and high heels and revealing clothing and you know being um, being sexually available to men or being, you know, uh, sexually submissive or passive in, in different ways has been seen as, as problematic from the point of view of, of feminists. And if we go back to what's known as the second wave of feminism of the um, kind of late 60s, 1970s, 1980s, there was a tendency in intellectual feminist discourse to, to very much see femininity as a problem to see femininity as something that is just kind of this this debilitating inauthentic uh, mask that makes women passive and that you know what is seen as feminine in society is is really just defined by a heterosexual male gaze and um all these ideas that women should be you know slender or wear high heels all of these things kind of serve to render women as as more passive, easier to control, easier to attack, all these types of things. And um, within like feminist theorization, there's been quite a um, critique of this, this idea of, of femininity as kind of a problem and, and uh, femininity is something that women need to kind of discard and leave behind to be empowered. Uh, because one thing that this idea, this very sort of pessimistic view of femininity ignores is that, of course, femininity is not always performed for the benefit of a male gaze. Like taking that view completely marginalizes uh, queer feminine desire, lesbian desire, and the, the ways that femininities are also negotiated for a female gaze or, or negotiated between uh, between women or between people who embody femininity in a way all these like different um, ways. So there's been a queer feminist critique of that idea. There's been critique from lesbian identified feminists who have uh, pointed out these uh, things. There's been critique from um, from like the intersectional side of things from feminists of color who have pointed out that this idea of 
you know, femininity as, as one, one kind of monolithical thing that just uh, renders women passive and decorative, that ignores the fact that they're in, like in any given social context, there's never just one idea of what femininity is. There's not just one femininity. There are multiple femininities and they are valued differently. Some femininities are seen as kind of more culturally um, valued and, and valuable than others. So like to generalize about our culture, the kind of uh, most highly culturally valued way of embodying femininity is a white middle class kind of moderate heterosexual monogamous femininity that is, you know, kind of just feminine enough without being excessive, without being um, going overboard in, 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 in any <laughs> type of way. But we also have like, we also have femininities that are stigmatized to various degrees. So like talking in terms of Babylon, like the idea of the slut and the whore and like the like the sexually, the overly sexually promiscuous woman, that's that's a form of femininity that is more, you know, seen as more problematic and more threatening in in society. From the other point of view, the woman who's not sexual enough, that's also kind of a femininity that is uh less valued in our culture. There's also um, various performances or embodiments of femininity that go outside of the like binary heterosexual cis uh, normative structure. So trans femininities, like non-binary embodiments of femininity in, in different ways, even something like drag, um, all of those are examples of you know, ways of embodying femininity that are not seen as as valid as this kind of, um, you know, white, middle-class, straight, heterosexual, monogamous kind of moderate um, femininity that is more sort of put on a pedestal in our culture. So what I think that the idea of Babylon does or the way that Babylon is uh, has been envisioned and and embodied uh, since since the beginning of the 20th century is to take aspects of femininity or, or like forms of, of doing and performing femininity that have been seen as bad so the slut or the whore or the like the sexually the woman who is who is too much or, or the femininity that is too much and mm -hmm. that is excessive and that is sexually aggressive and and I think you can see this as well in uh, in some of the aesthetics of, of Babylon and, and, you know, contemporary visual renditions of Babylon, there are aspects of a lot of um, artworks and, and kind of contemporary illustrations of Babylon that are in, in some ways normative. She's, she's usually performed as, you know, somewhat young, kind of conventionally um, attractive in, in a sort of way, usually sort of slender but with breasts and hips and long hair and red lips but on the other hand um so so some aspects of that are, are quite normative but in other ways she's also kind of depicted in in ways that i think very much go outside this culturally valued idea of feminine respectability like she's she's too much also like she's you know she wears uh, her lips are um, her lips are really red. She wears clothing that's a lot more revealing than is kind of considered socially acceptable in, in bourgeois society. <laughs> yes. 
like so she's also she's also challenging that idea of, of feminine respectability and 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 embracing or, or like the the symbol of babylon i think kind of in in some ways kind of um signifies an embracing of aspects and traits that uh women are not supposed to embody according to um according to our, our culture and and i think what's interesting about that is like when Crowley was was writing about Babylon and envisioning Babylon, he, um, I mean, that was definitely something that was very radical during his time period to to kind of elevate assertive feminine sexuality in that way. That was not something that was part of the mainstream. Like even uh, even within the context of first wave feminism, this idea that you know not only are women sexual but like women's sexual pleasure and desire should be taken as seriously as 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 anything else and that it's sacred and that it's a pathway to 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 magical power that was like even that that, that was a radical idea at the time and and i, I still think it is in in some ways but but one tendency I also think is like with with a symbol like Babylon, who is very transgressive in, in some ways, that also invites or that has invited people after Crowley and, and like throughout the 20th century and up until today to kind of bring in other things that are transgressive as well into their sort of um, their writings and, and their work around this figure. So like one tendency that I think we can see more and more today is for like present day esoteric practitioners to um, relate to Babylon as as, um, as kind of a protector or like a um, the epitome of lots of different forms of, of gendered and sexual transgressions. So, um, you know, there's mm -hmm. like an increasing body of work of, of occultists who are working with Babylon from the perspective of trans experience or, or genderqueer non-binary experience. So, uh, or, or sex workers who see Babylon as kind of a, a meaningful symbol to to relate to for uh, like through kind of in in what they do in in various forms of sex work, which is of course also um, can be seen as very transgressive in, in some ways. So so yeah, so I think there's that interesting kind of tension between in some ways kind of affirming you know, aspects of, of kind of a more traditional femininity, but also in uh, in challenging aspects of that. And, and as to that paradox, I also think it's sort of interesting because <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. I'm sorry for that, but... Um, it's fine. I'm so enjoying it. <laughs> but I also think there's this paradox in kind of the idea of Babylon. And this goes back to Crowley but it also comes through in like present day interpretations that there's this one side of it that is kind of about, you know, empowering femininity in, in some ways and kind of uplifting um, aspects of femininity that haven't really been allowed to exist and, and going like, you know, yes, women, uh, women are powerful, women are strong, women are all these things or people who, uh not who are not necessarily women but who inhabit or identify with femininity in, in different ways you know can take up this space and be assertive and be expressive um and that goes all the way back to crowley like even when he's writing about the idea of the scarlet woman he he makes in in some texts this very clear connection between 
this idea and kind of women who are active in the world and who are sexually assertive and socially dominant in various ways. But there's also this tendency in the writing around Babylon from Crowley to today um, to also lift up this kind of way of being that's not at all, you know, kind of individualistically empowered in this liberal sense of, you know, yes, I can do anything and I'm going to shape my own destiny. But that is also very much about um, breaking down the ego, shattering the ego, shattering this kind of um, atomistic, individualized perception of self and engaging with that which is outside of you. And that is um, that is something very different, I think, from kind of this sort of yay, you know, yay individual empowerment and and both both of those um both of those dimensions exist there like going back to the idea of crossing the abyss i mean and and annihilating your ego and, and draining your blood into the cup of babylon i mean in some ways that's that's the opposite of this kind of individual empowerment so i think that's really important mm. as well yes absolutely <laughs> i think it's just that you gave me a lot just there. <laughs> all <laughs> wonderful. I think you answered like three of my questions, like all back to back to back. So I was like, let's just let this happen because it's it's so wonderful. That's what the experience of reading the book is like to you. Like, okay, let's just uh, keep turning the pages and then a whole day has gone by. I'm um, sorry. I tend to go on. But no, like, this is so... It's so Stop good. It. I'm the same. I, I That's why I have a podcast. It's <laughs> funny because um, if you just ask people a lot of questions, they're like, oh, mm -hmm. that girl's kind of weird. Um, but if you have a podcast, they're like, oh, this is wonderful. I want to talk more. So it turned out okay in the end. Um, so everything that you just mentioned, uh, yes to all of it. And mm -hmm. I think you mentioned a word like affirming traditional femininity. And I think in with some ways Babylon does do that. But to me, mm -hmm. um, the understanding at least that I came away from uh, reading the book with is that Babylon is more about reclaiming or just claiming, depending mm -hmm. on um, where you're coming to her from. Um, femininity for yourself, whether it is mm -hmm. um, acceptable by society's standards or not. It's saying that, mm -hmm. you know, this mm -hmm. is something that I can have access to, um, that even if it seems like too much at times, whether mm -hmm. it's your desire or how much you want to adorn yourself or mm -hmm. exactly, um, yeah. just your own desire to, you know, experience mm -hmm. everything that the world has to offer, like it's safe to do it through mm -hmm. the figure of Babylon. So mm -hmm. maybe not safe. Babylon is quite, the, there is a danger to her mm -hmm. um, in the background, yeah. but mm -hmm. um, it's, it is interesting to see it become a source of like, like you mentioned, a source of comfort for marginalized mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Um, whether it's based on sexuality or mm -hmm. sex workers or mm -hmm. gender expression. Mm -hmm. um, that's really the, incredible thing to me about Babylon these days is that, mm -hmm. you know, all of these people are finding um, solace in this figure. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm curious about from your perspective is um, why do you, why do you think Babylon has become such a popular figure in recent years? 
in occult circles.、Mm. And you can't say Peter and Alcestis. <laughs> I guess you can. <laughs> But.、Um, so the main reason I think is Peter and Alcestis. <laughs> no.、Uh, no. No. But it, I mean, definitely that's been.、Um, I don't know whether to look at. You know their work as I mean they were definitely I mean I think definitely the the Red Goddess and a lot of the work that's come out of Scarlet Imprint has been hugely influential. Like jokes aside, I think that's、mm-hmm. um, done a lot for kind of putting Babylon on the broader esoteric map, also outside of kind of conventional. The Lima, in a way, and and outside of people who kind of exclusively identify as Thelemites, I think that has kind of brought a a, a wider discussion around、um, these ideas.、Um, looking at it sort of more generally outside of、um, outside of that, I think I think actually part of it is. I don't know. You know, it's、uh, it's it's strange. We're kind of you know we're in twenty twenty now. We're about About fifty fifty years after the sexual revolution, and in a lot of ways, you know, one might have expected that all of that work would have been done by this point. That it would no longer be radical to, you know,、mm-hmm. say that、um, women or, or people who who identify with femininity are sexual and have a need for sexual. Have a need for sexual pleasure. That they're horny. That they're you know,、um, that they can want to be、uh, have many lovers or you know, experience sexuality in in transgressive ways. You'd think that that would no longer be a radical statement,、uh, or or you maybe you'd hope that it would no longer have to be a radical statement. But the way I see it, it, it still is, and maybe it even it is even more that than it was. Ten or twenty years ago, in in some ways, like what we're seeing right now in in society with the current political、um, and and cultural debates that are going on. I mean, looking at the U.S., for instance, <laughs> like reproductive rights are continuously threatened and targeted by a very sort of yeah, it's quite very <laughs> yeah, like a very clever, very effectively mobilized conservative. Um, religiously driven movement, and we see that in in large parts of Europe as well. What's happening in Poland at the moment? We see the same thing,、yeah. um, slightly differently shaped, but but nevertheless, where you know people do still have to continuously defend、um, bodily autonomy and, and and sexual freedom for for large parts of the population. That's still not something we can. Take for granted, and I mean, even、um, I'm guessing I'm allowed to to like、um, to, to cite popular culture here, but I mean, I thought it was funny with、yes. the <laughs> the discussions around the song <laughs>、uh, the song W A P Wet Ass Pussy、um, a couple、yes. months ago. Oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> and the the video which is amazing and、uh, and which I love and how. Certain like conservative,、um, conservative voices responded to that. I think it was Ben Shapiro who who responded. Oh yes, said, 
like the video and you know these women <laughs> are rapping about this like bodily response that they're having and you know I've, I've spoken to my wife and she's a doctor and she thinks this sounds very irregular like women should not have wet, <laughs> wet pussies at all and she's never heard of it and you know like of course that's really really funny and it's so like it's so easy to to just kind of um to make fun of that and go well Ben Shapiro I don't know how you know I like I I, I feel bad for his wife um I guess yes <laughs> but, but but you know like it also says it also says something about kind of you know that 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 is still like a provocative thing to do for women and and for black women and, and women of color um i think it's it's in some ways even more sort of provocative um in in our society for, for women to take up that space and to claim sexual desire and sexual pleasure as their own that's still something that has to be um defended and that's still something that is is radical i think for that reason um i think babylon is kind of continuously relevant and, and maybe becoming more relevant in some ways i also think what we're seeing across uh, large parts of europe and in the united states we're seeing kind of a conservative backlash which is very aggressive to mm -hmm. a lot of sort of progressive movements that um occur during the 20th century the women's movement the civil rights movement the sexual revolution the uh, the lgbtq movement and we see kind of conservative forces backlashing and and attacking all this progress that's been made and the from from that side of things from the conservative side of things their language is becoming increasingly um abrasive and and aggressive and yeah. um i think to a lot of people and maybe especially young people it's 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 becoming apparent that maybe seeking the middle ground on these issues is not the best way to go maybe there's not always room for compromise and maybe the best way to counter really you know really sort of polarized um aggressive rhetoric from that side of things is to embrace these transgressive symbols and say that you know yes i'm gonna i'm gonna take these things that you see as stigmatized and that you see as bad and dangerous and I'm going to embrace them like you, you know, um, you think this is bad. Let me like, let me show you how, you know, how, how bad we can be. Basically. I think that's still sort of a, quite a powerful, um, powerful thing to do. So I think, uh, definitely that's, that's one reason why Babylon is kind of, um, remains uh remains relevant and and maybe maybe more so i also think um there's uh there's something in the idea of babylon going back to what i said earlier about this kind of um stripping down of the individual ego that from a completely different point of view is attractive to people today living in this society that we're in which is incredibly individualistic and competitive and you know, suddenly we're all supposed to kind of uh, brand manage ourselves, like ourselves on social media yes. and, you know, <laughs> create these very sort of inflated egos and personas. There's something in the idea of Babylon, I think, which is just the complete opposite, uh, which is the stripping down of all that, which is 
um, putting away everything that is ego and positioning and just um, embracing experience and letting it um, letting it tear you to pieces in and I think that can be something that's quite um, paradoxically quite freeing for people as well. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly beautiful. And <laughs> I don't think that I have anything else to offer that will be uh, <laughs> at all better than the intersection of Babylon with the song <laughs> Wet Ass Pussy. Uh, no, truly, like jokes aside, <laughs> um, that is that's such an important thing to point out, mm -hmm. and and you're right. We can laugh at the Ben Shapiro video mm -hmm. I did mm -hmm. many many times, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I I think you're absolutely right in saying mm -hmm. that that is that is why Babylon as a figure is is relevant and mm -hmm. needed. Mm -hmm. uh, we're recording this on two days after the United States election. Mm -hmm. um and so i'm thinking mm -hmm. also about how yeah we we need mm -hmm. that sort of loud um voice for personal autonomy mm -hmm. but also disillusion to like mm -hmm. become one with all that is i suppose <laughs> so yeah <laughs> that's yeah. this has been so wonderful um I am curious what uh, what projects do you have coming up next? I know that you're working on something Scarlet Woman related since you are reading mm -hmm. the Hersig's diaries, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. what yeah. what's coming down the pike for Manon? <laughs> so right now I am wrapping up my my postdoc project. You could say I've got about um, mm -hmm. nine months left. And that project has been um, has been dealing with some of the women in in Thelemic history during the 20th century. So one of them is Leah Hersig. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing that's going to come out of that project that I'm really excited about is a um, academic annotated critical edition of Leah Hersig's diaries from the early 1920s that I am um, co-editing with Henrik Bogdan, who's a scholar of religion at Gothenburg University in Sweden, and which is going to be published by Oxford University Press. Um, I'm really, really excited about that. And it's going to be it's going to be the first complete academic edition of, of Leia's magical diaries from from those years. So I'm really um, really really happy about that project i'm also working with another colleague um christian Udice, who um is a who's an independent scholar of religion who um and and we will be co-editing a a volume of essays called women of the lima which is going to have chapters on a number of of women also in thelemic history in, in the 20th century but a a broader selection of of, um, of historical women, you could say, and which is going to be uh, published by Camuret Press, hopefully sometime next year. So I'm um, I'm really excited about that as well, and I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be lovely. I think so. So yes, right now that's uh, that's that's what I'm doing, and also of course I'm trying to think of uh, what research project I'm going to try to do after after I'm finished with this one but that's going to be a uh, 
Um, uh, a later question, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's both an exciting moment and a terrifying one. Yeah, that, yes, like, definitely. Slate, so. Yeah, definitely kind of um, abject terror um, at, at this point <laughs> of having right. to figure out what to Astrologically, do. But... <laughs> we're going into like a really lovely, uh, lo there are some lovely points in 2021 and then 2022 will be even better. So, oh, it, you good. know, oh, I think we're all a little like mm -hmm. gun shy after yeah. 2020. Pretty so, much, um, yeah. Where there will be a recovery process, but. Hang in there. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. This has not been smooth sailing the last year <laughs> for anyone, I think. But... <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, for those people mm. that might want to find you online, mm -hmm. where can we do that? Mm -hmm. So I am, uh, I'm on Instagram uh, where I'm called Dr. Scarlet Woman. Uh, where I post about my my research mostly and about thalemic women. I'm also on Twitter under the same handle. Um, that one is a little less frequently updated. And I'm also on mm -hmm. Facebook where I have a page called the Thalemic Women's History Project, which is uh, about the postdoc research I've been doing and uh, where I update kind of continuously about that i've been a bit lazy about it in the last month because i've been <laughs> overburdened with uh with the, been busy yeah a little bit um and for those who are kind of um want to look into the academic side of my output more closely i'm also on this this page called academia.edu which has a list of of my uh, publications and, and some of them are uploaded as well Terrific. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I downloaded and read a couple of the one about the um, Satanic Temple, but mm -hmm. uh, we did not get a chance to talk about that. I didn't want no. to take us all the way from Babylon into Satanism. That's, you'll, you'll have to come back <laughs> and we'll talk another yeah, time. Right? Definitely. <laughs> this has Different been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really, this has been wonderful and lovely and such a nice break from the relentless um, news right now. Absolutely. Glad I could help. <laughs>